If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Chris Dial, co-founder and CEO of Salutaire. It's extremely rewarding when you, you hear about these cases that you can make an impact. We had an early uh, pilot participant in one of the hospitals and she said, Saturday is my favorite working day. And she said, yeah, during the week, I've got to deal with all these other hospital systems and then I work in your software. But on Saturday, I only work in your software and it's a pleasure. And I was, I was so touched by that and I shared it with the team and I said, we have to aim for that nonstop every day. Like that's what we want people to say. This is Chris. He started his career as an analyst at Forrester Research. He joined Microsoft in 2002, where over a period of 18 years, he enjoyed several roles from senior product manager all the way up to Microsoft's senior director of cloud ISVs and startups. Here, he led the process to find and make successful software companies building and running apps using Microsoft Azure and Dynamics. He managed his innovation team across 12 European countries. In December 2020, he co-founded Salutaire, which he leads as a CEO. They believe that every clinician and patient benefits when they are in dialogue together across the patient's journey, and that clinicians can be freed from performing many manual tasks. As such, Salutaire is on a mission to create solutions where this dialogue is happening and where the greatest improvements for healthcare can be made for better outcomes. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Chris to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the process of joining up healthcare and why doing nothing is not an option. Chris shares his approach to make the impossible possible and the lessons that he learned to overcome the hurdles to gain traction. He also shares his advice to stay mentally sane in the day-to-day battle that startups face to create meaningful change. Lastly, he shares his secrets to create software that people love to work with every single day. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how you can create transformative change by addressing problems that cross silos. Secondly, why customer anecdotes of joy should be a must-have metric to track for every R&D department. Thirdly, how to get customers to coach you to make the deal happen. And lastly, why you should design for both adoption and diffusion momentum, and how. 
Well, hi, Chris. Thank you for uh, being the guest today on the podcast. Hi, Ton. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, this has been uh, long in the making, and we know yeah. each other for some time. But I've been following you on your new journey uh, all the way coming from Microsoft and then yeah, starting the journey with your new company called uh, Salutaire. And yeah, I love the mission that you run. That's why, I mean, I just had to have you on the podcast. Before we start, we're going to talk about the company and, and what it's really up to. If you had to describe yourself as an entrepreneur in, in two or three words, what would that be? Wow, that's a good one. I, I think the first one that jumps to mind immediately is curious. I think you have to be curious as an entrepreneur. And inside that curiosity has to be a bit of truth seeking. You really want to find out what it is, like what's the truth of things, what's really happening, what's really going on, which which leads you to be you know, data-driven. I call it the second one, but let's let's keep it as the first one, curiosity. I think, yeah, curiosity is first. I think caring is second. I think you have to put in so much emotional, physical, mental energy into building a company, into recruiting people, putting them on a mission, convincing people. You know, a lot of the early stages are really just belief, you know, belief that there is a problem that's worth solving, that the problem is big enough, that people will be motivated to do something about it, and a belief that you can, you can put those things together. And I think the other one is, well, to keep with the C's, I'll, I'll say control, although that's a, a kind of a risky word, but let me say control and, and let's talk about control because I think control is also about you know, being able to put your house in order, to be able to lead a team, to be able to organize, to focus and prioritize. And you have to manage the business with some control because you know, if you're like me and you come from a large you know, a series of large organizations, and, and I did help build a startup early on in the, in the late 90s. You know, there's a lot of functional structure around you, which kind of takes yeah. care of stuff and you don't have to think about it. And there's a lot of like grunt work that no one's going to motivate you to do until it's too late. You know, if the government finds you for not filing things on time or you didn't pay your taxes properly, you didn't, you know, register something or didn't do your regulatory work, you know, all of that stuff will come up. And I was kind of relieved to hear it the other day because I was listening to a, a podcast of, of, of clearly one of the great entrepreneurs of our time who's, who's fun to follow, you know, no matter what side you fall on his philosophy of building companies. But and he's done some interesting things, no doubt. And it was Elon Musk. And Elon was on a, on a podcast and, you know, he was talking about doing his chores as an entrepreneur. And he's like, you know, I just have to do my chores. So maybe it's control slash chores. You know, it's not the part that people talk about that much. Yeah. But it's a big part of just doing the baseline of, of getting things done. And, I, and I, I kid people now because I, I have a degree, I have a liberal arts degree at a focus on chemistry and international relations, German language, you know, philosophy, I had kind of a mixed educational background. And I kind of tease people that looking back, you know, I would have gotten a JD, like I would have gone to law school. Like that's what I would have done to, to be here now. Like the thing that would help me now is law school. <laughs> oh, what a journey and what a story. I like I like uh, like the way you how you kind of pull it all together. But I completely agree that these uh, traits are critical. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these things you don't want to do, but they have to be in place, and yeah. someone needs to kind of st steer that uh, that part. But, well, making the bridge then to your company, you started this. You co-founded uh, Salutaire in December 2020, which was in the middle of COVID. Yeah, pretty interesting period to start. One of those, I think it was in Spain, in one of those areas where we were actually locked down again. What problem did you see that where you said, okay, and I'm with your co-founder, we have to do something about it. Let's let's now start. Yeah, I mean, Tom, as you know, we, we've known each other for many years, and I I had a passion for and a, and a caring to build software products. I, I believe that software can really change the way we do things for the better. I mean, it can 
take care of a lot of things for us, help us see things differently. You know, I've been in the software business my whole life and there's a lot of, like we said earlier, like jingo-ish stuff to it, but there's, there's really a lot of transformative power in it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get back into that specifically on the product side and to create something new. And I was thinking about either getting into energy or healthcare. And I ended up coming across a professor of medicine in the UK who was a longtime clinician who recently retired and is just absolutely brilliant. And is not only a clinician, but a, a clinical pharmacologist, which means he understands everything about drugs and medicines. And he told me for a long time that, you know, there's this opportunity to, to monitor medications, drug safety monitoring, which is not the same as clinical trials phase three, where you have a small batch of, of patients you're looking after. But really, when the drug goes into prescription and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are using it, what's happening with them? Are, are we monitoring them correctly? Which means yeah. not that we're taking their blood pressure or their heart rate or this kind of stuff, but are they getting regular blood tests? Are they getting regular scans? Are we checking for any, you know, changes in the body? Are we collecting information from them? And frankly, it was probably months. I just didn't believe him. You know, I, I can't believe that we prescribe these medicines and no one tracks them. I mean, come on, that's not possible. And then he just kept giving me case after case after case. Um, and he works in medical legal work. And so he's seen it for, for 15, 20 years, these cases that go to court, something was not done properly. And at some point it just shocked me. And I think the case that shocked me, Ton, was a patient that, that he knew about, a woman in her 20s, who started to have some liver problems and was requested to get blood tests. And she showed up to get blood tests, but because digitally the hospital wasn't in a place where they could find the tests, she didn't, she didn't stay. They sent her back. She didn't really come back to the hospital. I mean, this was during COVID. So they, they didn't want to come back to the hospital for fear of infection or too many people. So they put it off, they put it off. And then the woman comes, you know, probably two to three months later than she should have to have her blood test. They get taken they're not a good result and they go to the clinician, but they don't appropriately go to the clinician because the clinician was on holiday or the GP was out or, you know, we miss an email. Like we get, we get hundreds of emails. You miss an email. I mean, that happens. And the system shouldn't rely on that. And then more weeks pass. And then it's probably five to six months later, the woman has gone back in for drug tests. This is a fiber scan for her liver and discovers she has cirrhosis on a path to have cancer of the liver. Six months later in her original state, she could have, been cured. I mean, I just thought that was horrible. Like that's, that's just impossible. And it wasn't like, we don't know how to treat it. We couldn't find it. It's that the system didn't come together. It wasn't joined up. And that's what we talk about joining up healthcare is because I mean, a lot of this is, you know, workflow practices, getting information, the right information in front of the right people at the right time. But the difference is, you know, someone having cancer or not, or living or not, or being mobile or not. Exactly. Uh, and that was just too big, too big, too important of a problem that we could not, you know, not apply ourselves to. We could not get involved in. Yeah. I mean, I see what you mean. And on your website, I mean, I love the way you put it. More time to be health careful. Yeah. Love that word. And uh, we're joining up healthcare with software created by clinicians for clinicians. I mean, my next question doesn't even have to be answered anymore because this typically that is like, what's the opportunity if you get this right? But it's the difference between what you just said, you know being ill or not right die or not right and this is not a problem just in that city or in that location in the uk it's global right because i believe this is indeed i mean every i mean all these stories you can almost see it it's so much can go wrong and yeah wow <laughs> to like almost get goosebumps from it yeah so yeah you so do. yeah it's, it's it's rewarding you know there are a lot of challenges it is and 
public and health, and it's slower than a lot of the commercial world. But it's extremely rewarding when you you hear about these cases that you can make an impact or you know, our early pilot studies where we talk with the staff and we really spent a lot of time to, to design our software. We hired a professional artist and designer who's got a great background, is extremely creative, spends a lot of time, seems like managing small details, but when people see the software, they're very comfortable with it. It's very clear to them what they need to do and they enjoy working with it. And we had an early uh, pilot participant in one of the hospitals and she said, Saturday is my favorite working day. And I thought, well, it's Working on Saturday is not great, but okay, maybe it's your schedule. And she said, yeah, during the week, I've got to deal with all these other hospital systems. And then I work in your software. But on Saturday, I only work in your software and it's a pleasure. And uh-huh. I, was, I was so touched by that. And I shared it with the team and I said, we have to aim for that nonstop every day. Like that's what we want people to say. We want people to enjoy using software. It shouldn't be, I'm in a hospital, software should be crappy. I mean, I don't accept that. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, we come, we come from a long, long background of enterprise software. Yeah. yeah, for Unit Four, you're from Microsoft, and we've we've been there. And it was always about the, you know, yeah. yeah, it needs to be easy, easy to use, and a nice, great user interface. But the moment you start applying it to the problem and to like the day to day situation of people, then you start to realize, okay, what difference can it make? And then if people actually feel it's worth making a remark about, I mean, the reason why I wrote my book, then you're doing something really, really well. Congratulations! Thanks. So the aha moment was there. Yeah, I mean, that was that was a super clear case. Then you decide we're going to start this company. We're two to, well, good two years down the line right now. I mean, how do you start? Because, I mean, first of all, kind of describing the problem. It's a global problem. And yeah. That mission is where do you start at the end? Because you're also not dealing with organizations that are known for being super innovative. <laughs> right, right. Right. I mean, technology-wise, they're they're, they're not they're not super fast moving. I would agree. I think the thing that the the other I I think there were kind of two things that that pushed it together for me in terms of now is the time to move. I think first is my personal encountering of of this these kinds of stories. This this twenty seven year old woman who has this this disease she should never have ever had, and there are hundreds thousands like her. I mean, it's 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 unfortunately not a small number. At the same time, seeing that COVID forced the hospitals and the health services to reconsider how they were acquiring and using technology, and maybe they were overshooting it a bit on patient safety, or, or maybe not putting it in the right place. When we were talking about patient safety and also patient data, you know, this comes up a lot, and people talk to us about it. And of course, I mean, coming from Microsoft, understanding you know the power of, of Azure, and I mean, at this point, we say that Amazon or Google. I mean, these companies spend so much time and effort to get security and, and management right. It's hard to believe that even the most talented hospital it can match in terms of you know, engineering capability and just sheer brute force is being applied to it. So you should take advantage of that, I think, you know, under the right terms and make sure the data is respecting local regulation. And you know, we do that, we're on the UK tenant, et cetera. But you know, the fact that you're handling the data correctly, but you want to make it available. I mean, if you're protecting all this data, but at the end, we have to use that data. We have to we have to access it. We have to look at it. I mean, the doctors need to have the view of it at the right place. And even more surprisingly, I find out when I go to healthcare is that patients themselves don't always have the access to data they should have, their own data, even though by law, it's their data. They, they are the ultimate controller of it, but they don't have clear access to it. They can't get to it easily. They can't necessarily share it to other clinicians. So there's also a bit of, you know, at the balance of getting the security right, you also get the connectivity and the availability right. And I saw that COVID forced that in the front of the table. 
And when I saw that, I thought, okay, now we have an opportunity to change because we can make things more digital. We can move things a bit faster. And in fact, that's how we, we got our break, how we got started, as you asked, because we, we started with this drug safety monitoring product, this idea to look after patients who are on chronic medications. We saw that it was very similar to the cancer referral and management pathways. So we also extend the product to cover that. It was not feature-wise a big extension. It was a bit of an extension in terms of, of focus, what we wanted to do, but we found it matched quite well. And of course, a lot of cancer patients end up on chronic medications. And so there's a link there. And then what we realized is that, okay, we want to just tap into the automation of investigations, which means blood testing. Well, it turns out 40 to 50% of that is still, you know, by paper in hand. Wow. We couldn't believe it. And the hospital had a specific problem that they wanted our help with. And we decided to address, which was to automate this part of phlebotomy. And we realized if we automate that, then we can make that a core part of our product. So the clinician doesn't have to do it. It, it just happens as part of the pathway. And that got us into the hospital. That got us operational experience. We helped solve a problem for the hospital. It set us up now for our early contracts and deals. We've proven ourselves. We've also had to test ourselves. And so I think it's, you know, for us, it's that story of we had a vision, we have a strategy that we're on. There was an opportunity that came up and we took it and we evaluated against our strategy. And we said, you know, we're going to have to defer time and effort to do it, but it's worth it. It's going to, it's still going to take us in the right direction. You know, we thought we were going to go straight, left, right. But instead, we're going to turn right, turn right again, turn left, then go straight, then turn left. But we're going to get, you know, to the same place. Maybe we're going to end up in a better place. That's our best. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, yeah, but I, like you said, it's all it's all connected, and and yep. from from one problem you stumble onto the other problem, and then it's yeah. about prioritizing and where can you make yeah, yeah. move the needle faster, because otherwise you could have you could be out there for 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 years. And what I've yep. learned is, of course, that you're you're actually delivering this. You got customers that actually uh, that that are talking about this, sharing stories about how much they love it. Yeah, favorite Saturday. So yeah. Speed to market and also for this problem is, is essential. What I mean, the hardest nut to crack in this go to market for you so far? I mean, I, I would say it's, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely the engagement cycle with the public sector, specifically with the health service. I obviously underestimated the amount of regulations that we're going to have to do, the amount of forms that we have to do. We have to do data safety, we have to do clinical safety, we have to go through review boards. We have to set up in procurement frameworks. You know, th there's a lot more than just on the commercial side. You know, you set up your terms of service, you set up your cookie and data policy, you got your website going, your service tested, you got an SLA and you go. No, no, this is, you know, major risk logs of what's the clinical impact. How do you prove that it actually works? How are you going to manage the data? Have you done all these reviews? Have you done all these third-party assessments? And so, the investment there is, is high in times of, of time. And that, that was an unexpected nut to crack. And it took a while to crack it. I found a couple of things. One is, you know, like anything in life, you just have to get started. And as daunting as it seemed, once we were moving, like things were going, and of course, it didn't go as fast as we wanted, but we just kept at it. We kept at it and we kept at it. The other thing I, I found is that along the way, because we were clear about our mission and we were very open about wanting to help and we were not trying to take advantage of situations as they came up, but really tried to partner with the hospitals and health service. We developed a lot of friends on the other side who coached us, you know, do it this way, work in this form. Do you know about this? Oh, there's this uh, organization that can help you. Make sure you focus on these points. You know, not 
I mean, we weren't going after it in terms of cutting the corners, but it was just in terms of it was so much information, but we yeah. really found champions and, and helpers on the other side who said, hey, you know, it's not just you submitting a document. Let's look at it together. We'll coach you through it. This is what we're looking for. This is enough, you know, put more here. And I think without that, we, we wouldn't have made it through. We needed those kind of internal champions who really, you know, coached us on how to work with them. And I think you have so to have that. These were actually your, your clients or your potential clients? Yeah, exactly. Clients? Yeah, our clients on the other side. But, but lots of people, you know, the clinicians themselves, the finance department, the procurement department. Because, you know, for them, I think the thing that you don't always realize when you're on the other side of it, but it's, it can also be quite frustrating for them. I mean, you have a yeah. nice piece of technology. You demonstrate your integrity. You, you are doing everything you can to deploy. They want to deploy your software, but they also have stakeholders. They have the public that they have to consider. They have the, the rules they have to follow, the, the protocols they have to follow. And it can be onerous for them as well, right? But we all have to get there together. So, Let me make a small interruption here. Chris just made an excellent remark about the effects that you can create when building software solutions that people genuinely want. It creates a pull effect from the buyer side so strong that they will become your internal ambassadors to make the deal happen. Now coach you through the process. And this is a typical trait remarkable software companies master. They create solutions that are both highly valuable and highly desirable. And with that, they turn customers into fans, often already before they have bought it. And that sparks momentum. You can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Yeah, exactly. And this is a famous or fantastic example of what happens when you stop selling and when yeah. they start buying. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. then it's like, I want this and you know, whatever happens, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna make to you, make you deliver this. And then, yeah, doors can open. Of course, no shortcuts, but I completely agree with that. Has there been any counterintuitive lesson that you learned that you thought, okay, this is going to go this way, but it went a completely different way, but it turned out to be beneficial for you? Uh, counter, counterintuitive is big. I, I mean, something unexpected that happened. I think this is really managing yourself. And I think building a company has, has a lot to do with psychological development. If I can put this on the table, you know, it's the, it's the best way to really challenge yourself who are you? What do you want? How do you operate? I mean, you'll just be exposed to the truth so yeah. often and, and so consistently. You know, it, it, I think it's the best growth matrix that you can have. And, you know, we had the sense that this opportunity had popped up at the end of, of 2000, early 2021. And we went after it. And our product was way immature, uh, hasn't been fully tested, wasn't really scalable. But we knew we had the right value proposition. We knew we were nailing the right scenario. And we presented to a very large organization, like a slice of London. We're talking about a service that would, would, would service millions of patients. Yeah. And we knew it was a stretch. And you know, to their credit, the, the buying team gave us a chance to pitch and they really liked our solution. And they kind of poked at it and they went after it. And then they said, well, we have this other supplier and you, know, you guys aren't quite there yet. So thanks for applying, you know, maybe next time. And we were kind of defeated by it because we put all of our effort into it. We were excited about it. Yeah. And then- November that same year, guess who called us back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we tried this other solution. It's crap. We don't like it. Where are you guys? Well, we've been investing in this thing for seven or eight months, and now it's battle-hardened and scalable and you know ready and all this great stuff. 
And, you know, we got back in front of them and we were by far the leading candidates. And into cool. this day, I mean, even given we're the size of a startup, which is how you encounter procurement frameworks and policies and all this stuff, yeah. but we're still the solution that they want. And that, that deal is on the table today, five months later. It's okay. It's a long time, but it's there. And it started, you know, 15 months ago, you know, yeah, and we could have yeah, said 15 yeah. months ago, Hey, this is a distraction. It's a waste of time. But myself and my co-founder both had the gut feeling, yeah, we should roll this one. We, we should, let's roll it. Let's see what happens. Cool. Yeah, I liked it. Like those stories. And of course, like, I mean, you're dealing, you're dealing with, with the speed, but maybe this is like rocket speed for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. it's also, it gave you time, but at least you planted the seed and it made a, a big impression. And that is really, really good, even in the early stage. And I mean, I like the, the fact that you bring up the whole psychological aspect. I was listening to a podcast this morning while I was walking the dog, uh, starting greatness. And it was all also about that. And it was about the story about the, uh, the ups and downs and the roller coaster and how do you, how do you mend for that? Any advice to other CEOs that are listening to this podcast? I mean, how to prevent getting crazy? <laughs> prevent getting crazy. Um, um, wow, prevent making, well, getting, yeah, how do you say yeah, that? Yeah, I know what you mean, Ton. I know what you mean. Yeah, I would say... I think to me, this, this company, I mean, it's not only a business project, but it's a, it's a personal project. I mean, to speak quite closely, it's like I told you earlier, like it's the most aggressive growth plan, growth exposure I've ever heard, ever had, like personally, not so much physically, but you, you could go running all the time to kind of dispense energy. And, you know, I mean, there is an aspect of that, but like mentally, yeah. psychologically, emotionally, spiritually to some level. And I think too many founders I see don't embrace that side of it and don't yeah. don't take the challenges as an opportunity to learn and get better but take challenges and i find myself doing the same thing if something doesn't go my way i often you know we always have that first moment of like wow that's not what i want and why is this so hard and but then i just step back from that and go what am i going to learn from this how do i use this to improve and then i find psychologically when you when you treat it seriously psychologically and you you try to identify when am I in a situation where this is the reality of the situation versus what am I projecting on the situation? And if you learn to differentiate that, you are in a much better winning position. Yeah. And part of that is also not to over-respond or overcompensate to things because exactly. a lot of things are beyond your control or kind of do their own thing. And you know, I have, a, I have a close advisor who I spend a lot of time with, a good coach who's also doing a lot of this work. And, and probably the thing that he has said the most consistently is, is I think a quote from Wang Po or Xuanzi or any of the grades and masters, which is, and this is going to shock a lot of founders, so let's just get it out. But his advice is do nothing. Do nothing. If you're in a moment in a situation and you feel forced to make a decision, step back and do nothing. Yeah. Don't project into it. Don't compensate into it. Let the situation unfold. When you are flying at a different altitude and you see better and you are not taking in your own psychology, but you are seeing things as they are, then you can make a decision and you can yeah. strike. But ahead of that, you're probably going to screw something up. And I see a lot of that where, and I see it in myself as well, which is the first place you have to see it. You overcompensate, you react to something that's not there, you project on something and you have to ask yourself, is that what's going on? Or am I projecting? Like, yeah. let's talk about this, this deal we're working on, which is taking months and months. I could project like, we don't have the right offer or I'm not pushy enough or, but I just step back and I say, you know, 
I'm clear with them. They have our offer. I respond as fast as I can. And on the other side, you start to learn, well, they have 20 other projects they're trying to manage. They had an emergency that came up. They really like your solution. If I got too much in their face, they might say, oh, these guys are a bit of a pain to deal with, right? They're asking too much. They want to move too fast. You know, rather than me saying, what is really the situation? When is the right time to push and whatnot? Mastering that skill. And I'm talking about doing deals, but also with people, it's even more important. Where are your people at? Are they motivated? Are they engaged? Are they burned out? You know, I ask people to take time off or I ask people to step up the pace. I try to find out where they are. Again, am I projecting on them or is this the reality of their situation? I think this psychological impact, we don't talk enough about it. And what happens is, is that it spirals and, and these, these old patterns, these losing patterns, they multiply and then founders end up crazy. They end up projecting left and right. The market's against me. Everything's going to melt down or they make crazy product commitments. You know, all this stuff, you just see it come out. Why? Because they didn't fully engage the psychological dimension. It's clear. It is yeah, well said, well said. And it, it really also connects with what I, what I did morning was also the conclusion of that podcast. And it was about either taking things too personal or not personal enough and kind of <laughs> exactly. like living in denial and then complacency kicks in, which is also dangerous. So it's, yeah. it's really finding that, that balance. And I think your advice on that is spot on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Talking about, you know, products finished, you start, you start selling it. What is one lesson that is worth sharing here about learning how to sell this? Learning how to sell. Well, I mean, the first thing that came to mind, Tom, was ship faster, ship earlier. I think we should all be more motivated to get into use as soon as we can, the best possible product that we can. And of course, that's a curve we're all trying to fit. You know, you can't mm -hmm. ship, you, know, you can't push beta software out to people that's, you know, shoddy, but probably a lot of people over perfect things. Oh, this box is not exactly right. And I don't want to drop down here. I want the select here. And oh, this page should be green and not blue. And when you find yourself in that mode, you should be shipping and getting feedback because yeah. you can start to feel it, I think, in program management. And I see it with our team. When people start to, refine things and it starts to sound like opinion, like, oh, well, I think the user wants this box here or this step in the process. Okay, stop, ship, let's get yeah. feedback. Like we don't know anymore. When we have great customer feedback, we all understand, oh, this is exactly what they said. Let's go execute this, bang, bang, bang. What's the best way to do it? What's the scalable yeah. way, et cetera. But I think, you know, I think that's the thing. And when you are engaged with that customer, it's like you are always doing that selling. I mean, you were ever not selling. I mean, people say that's a bit cheesy, but it's true. Like you were always selling and selling is testing your idea, winning people over, seeing what sticks, what doesn't, with who, when, yep. you know, I mean, that's the power I think of always selling. And I think if you think of selling as kind of like customer service, let's be a bit risky. You know, what if we had companies that didn't have sales departments or customer service departments? Because everyone has to do those tasks. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's a bit idealistic. Yes. We need to have people focus on customers and deployments. I get it, but just play with that idea. Because remember, we used to have this division called CPE at Microsoft customer and partner experience. And we'd outsourced, you know, making customers satisfied to some team. 
And that had the perverse, reverse psychological impact of everyone else was like, oh, now I can be a jerk now because somebody else's job to manage the experience. Like, I don't have to respond to emails or I don't have to deal with this. Like, just send it to that team. Like, no, no, it's everyone's job, you know? Yeah. Like at some point, like everyone's job is to sell. <laughs> everyone's job is to support customers, right? Maybe you're very close to the customer. Maybe you're very far away, yeah. but that should be your mentality. Great, great point there. And I, I mean, I completely agree with uh, ship faster. And talking about like ship faster, but like what is that moment where it should go out? And, and here I'm talking about this, this sometimes this, this misconception about minimum viable product that it needs to, it needs to do the minimum thing. What do you believe is, is critical in terms of when, some, when something is minimal but ready to go? I've seen some, and, I, and, I, and I'm sorry, I can't attribute it because I, I don't remember the author, but I know that there's, there's someone that speaks about, maybe it's Luke Burgess from, uh, from his uh, Substack. I think he may talk about this as well, but you know, there's this idea that MVP doesn't mean you have a full product and you're just doing 20% of all the features. I think that's a misconception most of us fall into, and I have that. I think MVP is we have five areas of the product we do these two very well today, and the rest are just getting by or absent. But we think market value is driven on those two things. We want to get a decent experience off of those two things, and then everything else is kind of, eh. Let me give an example from our product line. We have a product called Dialog. Dialog is designed to bring all the information together from multiple sources, multiple GPs, practices, primary care, hospitals, put it together into a referral package when a patient gets referred for potential cancer. Now, there are some products that do it, but nobody was really doing it across hospitals. Nobody's making it very simple. Now, there are many steps to this. You have to make the referral. Then someone on the team needs to manage the referral. You need to get the recommendation, and then you need to go to the next step, et cetera. The part that we have really nailed today is referral. Like That part is good. You can go onto the site. You can go through a simple one, two, three process. You make a referral. You add your information. You get a PDF, and you're gone. But you just get a PDF. There's no dashboard really today that's available, that we're still designing it to really manage the cases. We said, uh, if someone gets a PDF, it's a start because they have other systems they can manage. It can go into the patient record. Yep. We don't have the monitoring yet. We have an idea of how we do the monitoring, but that's not ready yet. You know, one MVP idea will be like, well, let's just do V1 of everything. So the referral's kind of crappy, the dashboard's kind of yeah. crappy, and monitor's kind of crappy. But we said, no, let's make referral 70, 80% there. Dashboard is 20% there. Monitoring is 10% there. And that will be the first product. And then we'll just coach the customers, you know, this is coming, focus on this part. And I think the radical thing we're thinking about is charging very low, if nothing, for this first product, just to get, just to get diffusion out. I've had a discussion a long time now with some people in the health services and a lot of advisors and senior fellows around the, the NHS. And they talk about two, two concepts, adoption and diffusion. Yeah. And I had to think about them for a while. And it made sense to me because I thought... Adoption is you win someone over, you win a team over, they see the value of what you're doing and they, they adopt your product. Diffusion is that happening 10 times, 100 times. There are two different cycles, right? And we don't think enough about both of them. So a lot of us get very good at adoption. I can win that way, you know? And, it's, and you know what the mentality is done? It's like, well, if I could just get on the phone with them, I'll convince them. But that doesn't scale. And it can take a lot of phone conversations to get someone over the line. Diffusion is people kind of come in and see it. And we think, for instance, in our world, the referral parts, if we get that right, then clinicians from all other practices and hospitals will get sent a link, go here to make your referral. 
they'll hit it for the first time. They'll never talk to someone from Saitai. They'll never go to our website. They'll see the product. Ooh, this doesn't look like healthcare software. This is kind of fun. <laughs> what, what is this? Oh, Saitai, double click. Here's our website. Oh, that's fascinating. Hey, hospital uh, chief executive, how come we don't use this? Apparently it's free. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but I mean, you're, you're I mean, what, I mean tip, to num- tip to number eight of my book, you know, remarkable software companies are masters in creating momentum and this yeah, is exactly and this and by the design fusion momentum exactly exactly great example and uh, i think a lot of people that are listening to the podcast will get some inspiration from this uh, i mean bringing it back to the kind of the book that i wrote about the 10 traits to define remarkable software companies and you were you had this great story in the beginning about that woman that said okay it's saturday yeah this is my favorite day because i get to work the whole day in your software what do you believe makes the product makes a product if you if you start on this makes it what is required in order to make it to get reactions like this what needs to be true hmm i mean i guess that the the just the product design world that i i grew up in it was extremely extremely fortunate some of your listeners may know if not i'll recommend there's a there's a guy by the name of dave washa w-a-s-c-h-a dave washa was my my first boss at Microsoft, he hired me in the company to work on the e-business products. I remember this. He's gone on to do several product management lead jobs around several startups. He's got a brilliant video on YouTube about product development. And a lot of the things he rants about are things he ran about in 2002 when I started working with him. And I, I just adored him. And I, I thought it was a great product mine in that sense. And he knew how to put together a good team. One of his great insights was to work with a guy by the name of Tony Ulwick 20 years ago. Tony Ulwick wrote the Jobs to be Done book. And we got to work with Tony. Yeah. We were the first Microsoft team to work with Tony. He and his team were just absolutely incredible. I learned so much stuff about, you know, weighting priorities and then figuring out where the holes are in the market and focusing your product on that and try, not trying to redo things that people can already solve and really understanding yeah. the jobs to be done of the customer, which is not features requirement, but what are they trying to accomplish and how does your product help them get there? So I think you have, I mean... First thing, we, we run our, our company this way. We, we have to be this way. Who is the customer? What are they trying to achieve? Emotionally, socially, physically, psychologically, whatever. You, you need to understand what they're, what are they after and, and how are your product going to fit in and help them do it so that they'll adopt it. And the other thing is, I think with software, as we have done, you have to take design seriously. And you know, we have yeah. a saying that we use a lot, which is simple is hard. Simple is hard. Like, we all talk about simple software and we all adore using simple products, but when you really dedicate yourself to it, you see how difficult it is to make something simple and it's yep. a lot of effort. And of course, most of us on the end of simple products, and we all can think of simple product examples in our lives, we all have the same reaction, I think, which is, oh yeah, of course, of course, like, of course it looks like that. Like, of course it's that shape, you know, because you're at the very end of the process and, yep. you know, hindsight is, you know, 2020. Yeah, of course. You do. But when you're starting out, it's, it's tough. And I think, you know, devoting yourself to that. And like, you know, I think with this woman in this product, like it's a simple product, it's just several things. Well, but we were just harsh with ourselves about, do we really need this? Do we really need that? Are we confusing people? Do cards always do the same things? Do buttons always do the same things? Are things always in the same place, colored the same way? And we just catch ourselves. Oh, why is this button in different colors doing the same thing? Why is this line a different thing? You should, you know, simplify, simplify, simplify. And it's, it's meticulous. I think it's meticulous. That's the word I would use. Nice. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And it's, uh, it's really uh, having empathy for the people that you're, that you're doing this for. Yeah. 
Good, and when they love it, it's such a reward, isn't it? I mean, when they use it, like this woman, I mean, I, such a lift. I still talk about it, you know, it was a year ago. I still, I love it. Like, that, that's this, what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. It's worse when someone's like, oh, the, what a, like, oh, this is so confusing. What is it doing now? And you're like, oh, we failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But this is how diffusion starts. You know, yeah. it starts to ripple. Yeah. And I mean, it goes far, far, far beyond what you could achieve with your team and yeah, with, with millions of marketing budget behind it because she talks to her to her peers and they say i want this as well um getting to the top of the hour here from your entrepreneurial journey and what could what would be a do and and possibly what would be a don't that you would give to other aspiring ceos or tech ceos that want to kind of uh, yeah, make a bigger impact themselves i guess it's it's two sides of the it's two sides of the same coin don it's do keep going, don't give up. And it's the time that you want to give up, you just keep going. Yeah. Persistence is the whole story around it, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Persistence. Up very I, nicely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely persistence. And persistence in this context of, of psychology, which I talked about earlier. I mean, if there's one sure. topic that I would be happy to come back and, and chat more about, I will also be talking a lot more about myself and my own journey and LinkedIn is really the psychological, metaphysical almost development to, to build a great company that you have to go through and you have to embrace it. You have to be happy about it and enjoy it because it's yeah. going to challenge you at every level, but it also will make you reach the most potential that you have. Well said. Nice closing words. Where can people go to find out more about your company, Celotair? And where can they find you to say hi? Yeah, well, I'm on LinkedIn. Under Chris Dial, I think it's CH Dial, or it might be C Dial. I have to check. It's been a long time since I've I've, I've looked. But we're at salutari.co.uk. So it's S A L U T A R E dot co.uk. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking to you uh, again. Likewise. And I, I love the mission that you're on with your team. I'll keep following you. Thanks for sharing all the wisdom, the lessons learned, some pretty pretty inspiring advice from this yeah i mean i can only be humble so thank you my pleasure tom thanks for having me it's a pleasure to speak with you and see you let's keep in touch absolutely and this ends my conversation with chris and i hope you enjoyed it and if so please leave a review on itunes and if it inspired you please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network other than that thank you for tuning into this podcast i had the honor to speak to chris dial co-founder and ceo of salutaire as said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode.
That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. .com The Hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for .com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.